Got a lot of ground to cover for such a short book this morning, but let's, uh, let's go to the Lord in prayer, ask his blessing on our time in the Word. Uh, Heavenly Father, this morning it is so good um, to be together with, with your people and to spend some time in studying your Word. And uh, Father, I just I thank you for giving us your scriptures and revealing yourself to us in them. I ask for the power of your Holy Spirit to teach your word now and ask that it would, would go forth with, with power and that we would see you. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. One of my uh, family's favorite things to do, um, one of our favorite outings, is to visit museums, especially art museums. We're kind of wild like that. We've pretty much got the Nelson memorized at this point. Each time we go, it's like, all right, do we start at the top and work our way around to the bottom, or do we go backwards or forwards on this? Or, um, but we still keep going back over and over. And as much as I love looking at the, the paintings and the furniture and the sculpture, I, I love the stories behind each piece even more. Now, one art exhibit that one day I would love to be able to see is actually in, in San Antonio, Texas right now. I think soon it's going to be moved to, to Germany, so I might lose my chance. Um, but this is a, it is a, it's a piece that is more than 2,000 years old, carved in white marble, a bust of a, a Roman general from the reign of Emperor Tiberius. It's this really, really beautiful, absolutely priceless work of art. But what makes this sculpture unique is the story of, of how it was recently discovered. See, it wasn't uncovered in a, an archaeological dig somewhere. It wasn't found in some secret cathedral vault. This priceless relic was actually purchased at a Goodwill store in Austin for $34.99. The lady who ended up buying it was actually an, an amateur art collector who knew what she was looking at. When she saw this sculpture sitting under a table, she recognized the work of a true master, and she knew what a treasure she had found. So she bought it, buckled it into the front seat of her minivan, brought it home, and called the Sotheby's auction house. Now, how this priceless work of art got to that Goodwill store is still a mystery. But what amazes me is how for so long, shopper after shopper walked past that statue, looked it over, checked the price tag, and passed it by thinking, now that's cool, but it's not worth 35 bucks. Now, the book of the Bible that we're looking at this morning, um, a book that has been called... Uh, by one theologian, the Mona Lisa of all literary works, the book of Ruth. And it would be easy for us to miss the priceless beauty embedded in its pages, to take it for granted. But if we look closely, we will see the mark of the master in its seemingly commonplace events. And when we see what God reveals about himself in this beautiful story, we get to take home the treasure. Ruth is, is very unique among the books of the Bible. 
Theologians have classified its biblical genre as a short story. Um, It's a historical narrative about real people who really lived, but it is artfully written with unparalleled literary skill. It's intended to inform, to instruct, as well as to entertain its readers. Um, So dialogue between these three main characters is the, the vehicle that drives the narrative forward in these four chapters. The book doesn't name its author, although the Jewish Talmud credits Samuel as, as having written it. Uh, there, there are some scholars who have presented arguments against Samuel's authorship. We don't really know who wrote it. He may have. Um, there are others who believe that Ro- Ruth um, was written by a female author. I tend personally to, to lean towards this theory, um, pointing to the fact that unlike other books of the Bible, it is written from an almost entirely female perspective. This book was penned likely sometime during the reign of King David, probably by someone who was part of the royal household who would have had access to the lore of David's family. The events of Ruth take place, as we are told, in the days of the judges. This is important because it gives context to much of what happens in this story. Um, It heightens our sense of the vulnerability that Ruth and Naomi would have experienced as widows during a time when there was no king in Israel, and men did what was right in their own eyes. This also tells us that even during those dark days of idolatry, there were people in Israel, preserved by God, who loved and obeyed him. There are five dominant theological themes that I hope we will see as we go through this book together. Um, The first is restoration. The book of Ruth tells how God restores Naomi from the emptiness and despair that we first find her in at the story's beginning to her fullness and joy at its conclusion. The second key theme is that of rescue. This book details the rescue of Elimelech's family from the tragedy of extinction through the birth of an heir. The third theme I want us to see is that of reward. In this book, we see God's gracious and abundant rewarding of Ruth's faith as she turns to him for shelter in the midst of her trouble. As well, we see how he abundantly rewards Ruth for the steadfast, loyal, self-sacrificing love which she demonstrates toward her mother-in-law. This steadfast love, what is called in the book chesed, this is the love of God which he calls his people to walk in, and it is modeled for us by Ruth and by Boaz in the story. You could say that they are a good match for each other. It is this Chesed, this steadfast, loyal love of God that is the golden thread woven throughout this story. The fourth key theological theme that we should see is that of redemption. The crucial role of the kinsman redeemer is at the center of this story. The one who would buy back these women out of their trouble. 
And then this final one-word theological theme, and perhaps the most important one that we ought to recognize in the book, is that of God's providence. Now, providence is a word that doesn't get a lot of use in our modern-day Christianity. It is a word that the Reformers would have been familiar with, and it is definitely one that we should bring back. John Piper defines providence, the providence of God, like this. The providence of God is his purposeful sovereignty by which he will be completely successful in the achievement of his ultimate goal for the universe. God's providence carries his plans into action, guides all things toward his ultimate goal, and leads to the final consummation. A key aspect of the providence of God is his sovereign watch care and provision for his people. In fact, the word providence comes from the same Latin word as provision. And it is this truth of God's gracious provision, his providence, that Paul writes about in Romans in chapter 8, verse 28, where he says, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. And it is this providence, God's sovereignly carrying out his purpose in the ordinary lives of his people, which permeates the story of Ruth. We see it again and again, sometimes openly, but more often it's subtly in the background, but it is always there. In Ruth, we can see the hand of God behind the scenes, orchestrating events, working through human initiative and secondary causes to protect and to provide for those who put their trust in him. Ruth and Naomi and Boaz make it the spotlight, but the true hero of this story is Yahweh. Now, the four chapters of this book unfold very much like the scenes of a play, each with its own setting, its own atmosphere and principal characters. So we begin in chapter one, where first Naomi and then Ruth take center stage. The scene is a solitary road somewhere in the land of Moab leading to Bethlehem. And the backdrop is the gloom of sorrow and personal loss. In the opening verses, we get introduced to Naomi, and in many ways, she is actually the central character of this story around whom everything revolves. The book begins and ends with her because, like we said, one of the key themes is her restoration. So first, we were given a brief glimpse at her backstory, how famine had driven her husband Elimelech to uproot the family from their home in Bethlehem, how they became sojourners in the land of Moab. Moab, if you'll remember from our, our study in Numbers, uh, is the land where Israel had camped as they're journeying to Canaan after their wandering in the wilderness. Um, the land of Moab, which is today a part of, of, um, of the country of Jordan, it was situated on a fertile plateau between the eastern border of the Dead Sea and the Arabian Desert. It was also here that Israel would fall into some of its most egregious idolatry when the Moabite women seduced the Israelites into Baal worship. So to this book's original audience, to these Jews, Elimelech's decision to leave his clan and his inheritance in Bethlehem to live in Moab would have represented serious spiritual compromise. 
Even worse than that, uh, his sons marrying Moabite women, which was strictly forbidden, uh, it's almost certain that these original Jewish readers would have read into this what happens next as divine judgment for Elimelech's sin. So after the author gives us these few details, we are then dropped suddenly into the depths of Naomi's loss. So look down at verse 3 of chapter 1. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died. And she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah and the name of the other Ruth. They lived there about ten years, and both Malon and Chilion died, so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. There is unspeakable tragedy in these words. Not only had Naomi lost her husband, but now she had lost both of her sons, neither of whom had any children. So her family was, at this point, on the brink of extinction, with no seed, no offspring to carry on Elimelech's name. It would be as if they had never existed. And to an Israelite, this was the worst thing that could possibly happen. But in verse 6, there is a glimmer of hope when Naomi decides to go home. We read, For she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. So here we have this first hint of our theme of providence. The providence of God is at work. Naomi is going back to God's place for his people. And we get the sense that Yahweh is on the move. In verse 8, Naomi and her two daughters-in-law are actually on the road to Bethlehem with little but the clothes on their backs when Naomi has a sudden change of heart. She is overcome with grief. And she tells Orpah and Ruth to go back, go back to Moab, back to their families and to their gods. Now, these girls are all that she has left. And as she spirals into the hopelessness of her situation, she tries to push them away. They would be better off without her. Now look down in verse 8. Yep, Naomi's words. Go, return each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you in the house of her husband. As an aside, in this parting blessing of Naomi, um, which is actually a prayer to God, we see this echo again of his providence hinting at what he is about to do. She appeals to Yahweh, praying that he would deal kindly with her daughters, just as they have dealt kindly, this word chesed, with her and with their late husbands, that they might find rest in a new home with the husband that God would provide for them. So Naomi has all but lost any hope, but what little hope she has, she puts in Yahweh for her daughter-in-law's benefit. And as we're going to see, God in his providence answers every prayer in this book, but in ways that exceed every expectation. Verse 9 continues, Then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. The language that's used here, 
as well as this kiss that she gives to her daughters-in-law, signals the, the formal ending of a relationship. There is actually raw, agonized emotion in this goodbye because she is cutting them loose. She is releasing them from any familial duty which they owe to her. In verse 10, we read, And they said to her, No, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, Turn back, my daughters. Will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters. Go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. Then they lifted up their voices and wept again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law. So now, we see Orpah returning that same goodbye kiss that Naomi had given her, signaling the end of their relationship as mother and daughter. But Ruth could not. Ruth clung to her. Orpah let go. Ruth held on. This word cling is actually the same word we see in early Genesis that a man should leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife. Ruth is holding on with her whole being, with everything that she's got. You can almost see this picture as she is holding on, clinging to her mother-in-law, sobbing into her. Naomi looks over her shoulder at Orpah as she goes off into the distance. And she says, look, see, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. A Jewish tradition actually holds that Ruth had actually not truly adopted her husband's Israeliteness or turned from her Moabite gods, Chemesh and Baal, until this moment. Ruth's words recorded in verse 16 are some of the most beautiful ever written. In these words, we see two things. First, we have an incredible example of conversion as she refuses to go back to her old gods, putting her faith completely in Yahweh. She's putting all of her her eggs in this one basket. Secondly, we have an amazing example of what human working out of chesed looks like. Ruth's loyal love for Naomi, which the author calls here chesed, is a reflection of the steadfast love that God shows to his people. But Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there will I be buried. So Ruth is saying, not only is she committing to Naomi until Naomi's death, at which point she might go back home, she's saying, I will be buried with you. Till death do us part. May the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more. In verse 19, we read, So the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem, which uh, this this is mentioned so casually, but by the way, this was a 60-mile journey. 
that would have taken almost 10 days through rough terrain and dangerous lands. This alone points to the providence of God, which brings them to Bethlehem. But their arrival in Bethlehem causes quite a stir. We're told that the women of the town are whispering to each other, can this be Naomi? Is this the Naomi that left us 10 years ago? And in these verses, in the latter part of chapter 1, we see how Naomi's grief has brought her incredibly low. She voices this complaint against God. She says, do not call me Naomi, a name which actually means my joy or my pleasantness. Call me Mara, which means bitterness, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. Naomi's faith has been strained to the breaking point, and she brings this veiled accusation against God. You almost have this reminiscence of, of Job as he brings his arguments before God for his suffering. He has dealt very bitterly with me. What is God doing? She says, I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty And her statement here brings us back to this key theme of restoration. Naomi was made empty in Moab, but as she returns to God's place for his people, she is about to be made full. This last verse in chapter 1 points us to God's gracious provision and his work, even in the timing of their return. It says, And they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest. A change is coming. So now we come to chapter 2, where the scene changes dramatically. Ruth takes center stage. The setting is a barley field under the glaring sun somewhere outside of Bethlehem. The atmosphere is bright and full of anticipation for what might happen. Verse 2 introduces a very important theme, that of redemption. We read, Now Naomi had a relative of her husband's, a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. So the author, by telling us about Boaz's existence at this point, um, and that fa- the fact that he is related to Naomi, he's hinting at, at this fact that this man may be able to fulfill this critical role of the kinsman redeemer. The kinsman ro- redeemer, or the goel in Hebrew, served a critical role in Hebrew society. His task was to preserve the wholeness of his clan. The responsibilities of a goel, as outlined in Leviticus 25 and Deuteronomy 25, include avenging the death of a slain family member, or if someone within the clan fell on hard times, became indebted and impoverished, and had to sell their property or sell themselves into slavery, the goel was charged with buying them back, redeeming them, and their land. This is similar to the Leverite laws that we see in Deuteronomy 25. Um, The Goel was able to fill this role um, if there was no brother to marry the widow of a deceased man. He could redeem that widow out of her widowhood by marrying her and raising up an heir to her dead husband's name. So this role of a kinsman redeemer was a sacrificial one. Often it was at great personal cost. It was also voluntary. To fulfill the role of kinsman redeemer was seen as an act of hesed. 
the worthiness or uprightness of such a man was judged by his willingness to step in and fulfill the role of redeemer. So that Boaz exists and that he is known to be a worthy man who honors his God-given responsibility, this is a game-changer. By telling us about him, the author is hinting at the possibility of rescue for these widows from their predicament. And from this point on, the audience is going to be holding its breath, wondering, will he do it? Is he going to be the redeemer? Will Boaz marry Ruth? So in the beginning of chapter 2, Ruth says to Naomi, let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after him, in whose sight I shall find favor. So at this time, legally, those who were impoverished were allowed to glean uh, the, the corners of the fields or to glean what the harvesters had dropped in bundling together the sheaves of barley and of, of wheat. And interestingly, this, the, 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 the Hebrew language implies that this is the day after they arrived. So they are in desperate need. Ruth is seeking to provide something for them to live on. Naomi says, go, my daughter. So she set out and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers. And I love this. It says, she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the clan of Elimelech. So the author, tongue-in-cheek, makes this, this purposeful understatement to actually draw our attention to the fact that Yahweh is clearly in control of what's happening here. Out of all the hundreds of fields that she could have picked, Ruth came to the one which belonged to Boaz. God's providence at work. So verse 4 continues, And behold, what do you know it? Boaz came from Bethlehem. And he said to the reapers, The Lord be with you. And they answered, The Lord bless you. Then Boaz said to his young man who was in charge of the reapers, Whose young woman is this? And the servant who was in charge of the reapers answered, She is the young Moabite woman who came back with Naomi from the country of Moab. She said, Please let me glean and gather among the sheaves after the reapers. So she came, and she has continued from early morning until now, except for a short rest. Then Boaz said to Ruth, Now listen, my daughter. Do not go out to glean in another field or leave this one, but keep close to my young women. Let your eyes be on the field that they are reaping and go after them. Have I not charged the young men not to touch you? And when you are thirsty, go to the vessels and drink what the young men have dropped. Can you imagine how these words must have affected Ruth? Here is this young woman. She has just lost her husband. She is now a stranger living in a strange land with no one to provide for her. Her mother depending on her. No food, no money. She's hungry and tired and alone. And these words from Boaz, a man she's never met, would have meant the world to her. In verse 11, she's overwhelmed by his gentle kindness and generosity. It says, Then she fell on her face, bowing to the ground, and said to him, Why have I found favor in your eyes, that you should take notice of me, since I am a foreigner? But Boaz answered her, All that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me, and how you left your father and mother and your native land and came to a people that you did not know before. 
And in verse 12, we have another of these key prayers within the book that God is going to answer. He says, The Lord repay you for what you have done, and a full reward be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. I wonder if Boaz at this point had yet begun to suspect that God might answer this prayer through him. Verse 13 sounds like a long sigh of relief from Ruth after all that she has endured. In verse 13 we read, Then she said, I have found favor in your eyes, my Lord, for you have comforted me and spoken kindly to your servant, though I am not one of your servants. The theme of abundant reward continues throughout the rest of chapter 2. Not only does Boaz allow Ruth this unique privilege of gleaning among the sheaves where she would find better barley, he invites her to join his entourage, his household, for a meal. He gives her a place in this circle, serving her himself, treating her as one of his household. And when he passes to her the roasted grain, he dishes out such a large portion that she has leftovers and brings them back home to Naomi. As Ruth then gets up from lunch and goes back to work in the fields, Boaz leans over to his hired men and says, by the way, don't any of you mess with her. I want you to look out for her, and I want you to start pulling out some of the barley. Don't let her see it, but start pulling out some of the good stuff and leave it behind. So she gleaned in the field until evening. Then she beat out what she gleaned, we're told in verse 17, now, it was unusual that someone would actually beat out the barley stalk that they had gleaned at this point. Um, it was an incredibly laborious process, and especially something to do at the end of a long day of harvesting. So one gets the idea that Ruth had to do this because the piles that she had collected were too big for her to bring back home. So once she had beat out the grains from these barley stalks, we're told it was about an ephah of barley a full bushel, or about 60 pounds. This would have been equal to a laborer's wages for an entire month. This is an unheard of amount to have gleaned in one day. And she took it up and went into the city. Her mother-in-law saw what she had gleaned. She also brought out and gave her what food she had left over after being satisfied. And we're going to skip ahead for, for sake of time. But again, so clearly, we see in this story this ongoing theme of the providence of God, his reward for the faith that Ruth has placed in him. She tells Naomi where she got all of the barley, and when she hears who she was gleaning with, Naomi is overjoyed, and she praises God for his watch care because Ruth has been gleaning with the one who could redeem them. Now we read that she continues to glean in Boaz's fields for the entire uh, harvest season, which means that she would have brought in not only barley but wheat. And at the end of the, those two months of harvesting, um, where doubtless she would have spent quite a bit of time around Boaz, 
They would have shared many meals and gotten to know one another. Um, at the, the, the end of chapter 2, we read this, this interesting statement, and she lived with her mother-in-law. Now, we, we know that this was the case, but this last phrase is, is intended by the author to give us this sort of sense of a, of a letdown. Things have settled down. The harvest is now over, um, and nothing has happened. But in chapter 3, Naomi and Ruth take matters into their own hands. Boaz and Ruth take center stage here, and the setting again changes to a threshing floor under cover of darkness, and the atmosphere is full of suspense and anticipation. So out of her wish to see Ruth safe, Naomi hatches this risky and unorthodox plan to force the issue. So she tells Ruth to bathe herself, put on some perfume, put on her best clothes, and to go down to the threshing floor. So this would have been a a flat outdoor space at the foot of of the hill of Bethlehem where these men would work to process their harvest. It would have been full of these giant piles of wheat and barley and the stalks that had been processed. Boaz was going to be working there until sundown with his men. It was also customary for the men to spend the night camped out on the threshing floor guarding their piles of wheat and barley. Naomi says Ruth is to wait until after dark when Boaz is asleep Then she is to lie down at his feet in the posture of a supplicant seeking protection. And when he wakes up, then voila, what could go wrong? Um, The scriptures don't actually pass judgment on whether or not this was a good plan. But if it sounds like a gamble, it's because it was. By going through with it, Ruth was risking everything. But these women knew Boaz's character And they were willing to trust the providence of God that he would see her act for what it was and that he would respond with kindness. So Ruth trustingly submits to Naomi's direction. She goes through with it, carrying out her instructions to the letter. And like Esther going before the king, she would entrust herself to the divine providence of Yahweh. You can almost hear Ruth's heart pounding as she approaches these working men at dusk hiding herself somewhere, maybe behind one of these piles of wheat, waiting for the cover of darkness and for Boaz to fall asleep. So let's pick up in verse 7 of chapter, chapter 3. And when Boaz had eaten and drunk, and his heart was merry, he went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain. Then she came softly and uncovered his feet and lay down. At midnight, the man was startled and turned over, And behold, a woman lay at his feet. He said, who are you? And she answered, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. And here Ruth takes a bit of a detour from Naomi's instructions. Instead of leaving it up to Boaz, she literally proposes marriage to him asking him in the Hebrew to spread the corner of his cloak over her. This is a a word picture for a husband's sheltering protection of his wife. Interestingly, this is exactly the same phrase that we saw earlier when Boaz said, you have come to hide under the wings of Yahweh for refuge. So the author is, is indicating by this that what Boaz would do for Ruth, 
he would be acting on behalf of Yahweh. <clears throat> she says, for you are a kinsman redeemer. So how does he respond? Boaz says, may you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. You have made this last kindness greater than the first, and that you have not gone after young men, whether rich or poor. So the kindness that Boaz says Ruth is showing here is not towards him, but towards Naomi. He instantly recognizes that what Ruth is doing here is primarily out of care for her. See, Boaz implies by his statement that Ruth had options, and her great kindness is that rather than go after a husband purely out of preference for one who was poor or for her own personal advantage, one who was rich, she presents herself to Boaz in Naomi's stead so that by marrying her as Goel, he can rescue Naomi's family and give her an heir through Ruth. Their first son would legally also be Naomi's son and Elimelech's heir, able to inherit his land and to carry on his name, allowing the family's seed to continue in the land. Now, this in itself was a beautiful act of faith because Ruth, remember, for 10 years had been barren. Now, understanding this puts into perspective the true gravity of what she's doing. Now we can see why Boaz says that she is showing chesed. And in verse 11, he shows her chesed, steadfast love, in return. He says, And now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you all that you ask, for all my fellow townsmen know that you are a worthy woman. And now it is true that I am a redeemer, yet there is a redeemer nearer than I. So here comes the twist that nobody saw coming. Boaz reveals to Ruth that there's actually another potential suitor whose prior claim presents an, an obstacle to their marriage. But it is one that Boaz is going to deal with in chapter 4. He continues in verse 13. Remain tonight, and in the morning... If he will redeem you, good, let him do it. But if he's not willing to redeem you, then as the Lord lives, I will redeem you. Lie down until morning. By telling Ruth to stay with him through the night, we see Boaz already spreading his protection over her, as he has before now. At great risk to his own reputation, Boaz would not hazard Ruth's safety by letting her go back through the dark to the city. He essentially says, stay here with me. I'll protect you until morning comes. So she lay at his feet until morning. They got up and Ruth prepared to go before anyone could see them. But before she left, Boaz sends a gift with her to Naomi. He says, bring the garment you're wearing and hold it out. So she held it, and he measured out six measures of barley, an amount that would have been between 60 to 100 pounds. So all that working out in the fields was paying off at this point. She returns to Ruth. She shows her Boaz gift, tells her what happened. And this was more than simple generosity on Boaz's part. This was a pledge to Naomi 
of his purpose to redeem her and Ruth. This was a sort of a down payment. Some scholars have suggested that the grain itself was perhaps intended, perhaps intended as a metaphor for his promise to raise up seed, an offspring to Naomi through his marriage to Ruth. Naomi says, wait, my daughter, until you learn how the matter turns out, for the man will not rest, but will settle the matter today. So with the end of chapter 3, we're left on a cliffhanger. What is going to happen? Will Ruth and Boaz get together, or will Ruth have to fall on her sword and marry this unknown man? So by waiting until now to introduce this complication about the unknown suitor to us, the author heightens that suspense. So in chapter 4, we reach the story's final conclusion. Boaz steps to center stage. The main setting is now the gate of the city where legal matters were decided. And for you ladies, here's the romantic part. Far from being ambivalent or passive about whether or not his kinsman took Ruth or he could marry Ruth, we see Boaz in this chapter actually cleverly maneuvering. He is carefully crafting his proposal to this man so as to discourage him from taking the right of Goel. And though it's going to cost him, Boaz wants to be the one to marry Ruth. He's fighting for her. He loves her. So long story short, Boaz gets up, goes to Bethlehem, to the city gates where this legal proceeding could move forward, and at the moment that he arrives, we're told the very man he needs to see shows up, by pure chance. Boaz gathers the necessary number of spectators to witness the proceedings. He says, you sit here, and you sit here, and you sit here, and we're going to go ahead. So while he and his kinsmen settle the matter of Ruth and Naomi's redemption, Uh, Boaz first tells this man that Naomi is selling a plot of land which had belonged to her husband Elimelech. Now what this means is that the land Elimelech's family had held as their inheritance before they immigrated to Moab had at some point passed into the hands of another family. And Naomi, as Elimelech's widow, was claiming the right of redemption so that her Goel, her kinsman redeemer, if willing, would buy back the land from its current owner. Now, according to custom, the the one who bought back the land was expected to marry the widow of the deceased in order to provide an heir. And this heir, when he was an adult, adult, would then be given back the land at no cost, and it would pass again out of the Redeemer's clan, or out of his inheritance. So basically, if there was a son, this was a bad investment. Now initially, the man says that he will redeem the land, and by extension, Naomi as his wife. Now to him, this was no great risk, because everyone knew that Naomi was too old to bear a son. Then Boaz tells him, oh, and by the way, The young Moabite girl, Ruth, is taking Naomi's place. So if you buy the land, you marry her. Suddenly, this doesn't seem like such a good deal anymore. The likelihood of an heir by Ruth is much greater. And so this man actually says, I've changed my mind. Um, You take my right of redemption. How about you buy them out? Game, set, match. So let's continue reading in verse 9. 
through the end of the story. Then Boaz said to the elders and all the people, You are witnesses this day that I have bought from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Elimelech and all that belonged to Chilion and to Malon. Also Ruth the Moabite, the widow of Malon, I have bought to be my wife, to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance, that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers and from the gate of his native place. You are witnesses this day. Then all the people who were at the gate and the elders said, We are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. Skip down to verse 13. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. And he went into her, and the Lord gave her conception. And she bore a son. Then the women said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a redeemer. And may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age for your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons has given birth to him. Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. And the women of the neighborhood gave him a name saying, a son has been born to Naomi. So at the conclusion of this story, we can see the consummation of all of these key theological themes. Naomi is restored. She is home, her emptiness has been made full, and her sorrow turned to joy. Elimelech's name has been rescued through an heir. Both Naomi and Ruth have been redeemed from their sorrow and their widowhood. Ruth's faithful love for Naomi and her faith in Yahweh has been rewarded. And all of these abundant blessings have been brought about through the gracious providence of God at work in the ordinary lives of his people. Yahweh is the hero of Ruth. But the author has one more surprise for us in verse 18, and we'll wrap up. It says, They named him Obed, Ruth's son, meaning servant of Yahweh. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. The beginning of the New Testament actually continues this genealogy in the book of Matthew, drawing a direct line from Ruth and Boaz to King David to the Lord Jesus Christ. Can we see the wonder of God's providence? How he faithfully carries out his plan into action, guiding all things towards his ultimate goal, grafting in this Gentile woman to preserve the seed, the offspring that would one day be born as a a baby in Bethlehem, the true kinsman redeemer who would save his people from their sins. May we, like Ruth and like Boaz, put our trust completely in him. We'll meet back here uh, in a few minutes for morning worship.